The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss how to make the most out of your product launches. Joining us today is Sierra Tishgart, who is the co-founder at Great Jones, which is a modern kitchen company that marries substance with style by equipping and encouraging and inspiring people to cook more frequently, even if that means that they're just frying an egg. And today, Sierra is going to talk to us about how e-commerce brands should prepare for their product launches. Okay, here's our interview with Sierra Tishgart, co-founder at Great Jones. Sierra, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. From what I understand, a couple of the members of your marketing team are listeners to the MarTech Podcast. So first off, shout out to the marketing team at Great Jones. Thanks for telling your boss to come join us and be on the show. Yes, Grace is a big fan in particular. Grace, pleasure to meet you. And by all means, feel free to write in and ask any questions. Uh, appreciate the support. Sierra, let's talk a little bit about your background and what Great Jones is. I understand you had a very successful product launch, and we're going to get into that. But let's just set the stage. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about the company that you're running. I worked as a journalist prior to starting Great Jones. I went to journalism school. I thought that would be my career path. And specifically, I ended up working in food journalism and spent over five years at New York Magazine having a dream job, which was going around and trying every new restaurant, meeting every single chef, was very immersed in the food scene. But as a result, didn't really spend much time thinking or caring about my own cooking. That started to change as I got a little bit older and had been in the job for several years. And I really wanted to cook more frequently. I didn't even set out to become a better cook necessarily. I just wanted to make it a part of my routine. And the first step for me was that I needed new pots and pans. I had hand-me-downs that were chipped and scraping and they were from my parents. But when I went to do so, it was a total pain to figure out what I needed and why to find high quality things that were affordable, a lot of classic direct to consumer issues. And I've seen companies solve for consumer problems in my own life. I was really surprised that no one had taken a modern approach to the cookware space. And this started to bother me. But fortunately, my friend of 20 years, Maddie Mollis, had been working in the startup space. She built her career at Warby Parker and Zola, and she came over for dinner. And I said, have you bought cookware? Have you looked at this, seen this at Zola? Like, this is so antiquated. And she couldn't have agreed more. And that was really the beginning. 
we both felt like if we've had this problem, who else has? So tell me about the purpose of your brand. Are you trying to get people who already have cooking gear to replace what they have or basically buy their own first set? We definitely see our product as an upgrade. We see this as really high quality cookware that will last you for many decades. We are not the least expensive option. We are certainly not the most. So we see this as you have probably that starter set, likely hand-me-downs, probably a hodgepodge of things that may have ended up in college houses that you just happened to take. But this is really the first time that I think people are wanting to invest in their cookware and their spouse. Well, walk me through your process of thinking about launch. You met a co-founder, somebody that understood consumer packaged goods. I'm assuming that they're running the manufacturing side and, and you had some experience in marketing and content creation. Talk to me about the early stages of Great Jones and what made your product launch so successful? Once Maddie and I decided to partner on this, we both felt like, okay, we have seen a million quote-unquote direct-to-consumer launches this month, this year. This is every category. It's crowded in this. And that included kitchenware and cookware, which we realized we weren't the only ones who realized that this needed updating. So we set out very much to do this differently. And the first aspect of that, before we had a name for the company, a brand, like graphic design or brand identity... We said, what are these products? What are actually the essentials that you need? And how do they function? And what points of the actual function of these pots and pans can we improve upon? So we started with industrial design. We found through a friend of a friend, we found a husband and wife industrial design team who had full-time jobs, but were kind of looking to leave and sort of in that same trying to prove themselves that we were in that same stage. And we really started cracking down on the design and knowing that as important as it was, and it was very important that these are stylish. And I do think a big part of our brand is that we consider cookware as a public part of your home. We don't shy away from the aesthetic. And really do believe that that's not just superficial. If you are walking by your stovetop and you have a Dutch oven sitting out, you're more likely to use it and engage with it and cook more. So aesthetically, we really wanted to do something different and make something beautiful. But also in terms of actual form, we ran a big survey that included tons of regular home cooks and our friends and our network, as well as the professional chefs that had gone to know at New York Magazine, and pinpointed parts of cookware design that we felt like we could improve. So specifically, we have a signature handle that has shaped and angled in a specific way with the metal that it doesn't get too hot. It also has a natural resting place for your thumb. It hugs the palm of your hand. Handles are something that universally, whether you're a professional or an amateur, people complained about. So we made these brand new, at this point, before they even mold, they were rendering. We weren't constrained by what was out there, what we even knew was possible. We really decided to actually literally make our own industrial molds before anything else. So the lesson here is first comes first, when you're thinking about a product launch, you have to have a product and understanding your customer happens before you actually start marketing to them. You did some user research, customer interviews or prospect interviews to try to figure out what some of the pain points were. And that's something that helped you understand what type of product you were going to create. But also I'm assuming it helped you think about launch when you got to that point. Once you had landed on a great product and you go through the manufacturing process. Talk to me about what you're doing to communicate your product to the people that you think are your prospects to get feedback. 
Then it came time to really start building buzz. As finally these products into production, most of our traffic and how we get new customers is through Instagram. You know, our audience is millennial. That's how they find out about brands. And that was really apparent from day one. We started teasing this out on Instagram. We almost did like a cookware strip tease. We showed like little parts of the design. And for my work as a journalist, I had someone of a built-in audience already for that, which was definitely a strong advantage. We also started as soon as we could, when we had our initial prototypes, we put them in the hands of some of these professional cooks and chefs that we had been looking to for advice. This was partly strategic and intentional to just slowly build buzz, but we also were really coming up as tight as we could possibly get to hit a holiday deadline. So we had maybe five pots in the office, and we were just trying to stretch those as it was post-Thanksgiving, as people were starting to think about holiday, to really create awareness there. Okay, so you're doing a couple different things. First off, you have an influencer marketing strategy. You're doing some product trials with people that have influence, that have a following, that can demo your product and start to build buzz, right? People are seeing your products before they're publicly available. So whether it's intentional or not, you know, there's a visual cue that someone is picking up by looking at something unique, like the handle on your pots and pans. And the second thing you're doing is you're taking advantage of existing assets. You already have a following because you are a writer. You already have access to a group of people. So you can start, in your case, reaching out to them on Instagram. If you have an email following, if you have an existing list, there's other ways that you can start to market to people from a previous life that might be relevant or interested in your product. When you get close to the holiday deadline, you mentioned that you're trying to push this out for the holidays, one of the biggest times in e-commerce. Why did you decide to specifically focus on the holidays? seems like a lot of pressure to get a product launch out during the holidays. And what were the tactics that you took outside of you have an Instagram following that you've been building to actually make the launch successful? So for the holidays, we had heard from advisors and investors that one, obviously, it's a huge shopping time for all categories, but specifically kitchenware and cookware. Think of Thanksgiving, think of Christmas meals. You know, it's warm and cozy. It's everything that you want to communicate with kitchenware. It's very concentrated during that time. To be quite frank, we also knew that, like I said, we weren't the only ones who wanted to modernize kitchenware. We felt like, and we were very confident that our approach was going to be unique and proprietary, but there had already been one or two that had launched. When we were going out to raise capital, we heard there were even more. So part of the holiday rush was also to get out ahead. And we knew that as much as we'd be compared to the luxury heritage brands, we'd also be directly compared to any other startups, definitely more so at the beginning. So all of that contributed to that sense of speed that allowed us to launch November 8th of 2018. So talk to me about the marketing tactics that you used for launch. You got an Instagram following now, right? You're using your existing following. What are you doing to actually sell products other than putting it on Instagram, imagining there's an adver- a paid advertising campaign? What made your launch so special? I think one, it's easy to just say Instagram and just dismiss it away. But I think actually like looking back, we had such this wide variety of Instagram assets that was beyond just showing our product. We showed vintage cookbooks. We showed the process of making these. It was very like rooted in nostalgia and voice from day one, which I think really led that following to grow well beyond any initial advantage we might have had from prior work. 
We also held a series of events, which were definitely tied into influencers. But our idea was really get people cooking with these. So we held one at the founder of Sweet Green's home, where he made brunch with his fiance for a whole group of friends. And we said, you make the guest list, invite anyone you want. Like, we trust your network. And we did that a few times. We also did that with two founders of a company called Of A Kind in New York. They had a book called Work Wife coming out. They invited different Work Wife partner pairs. So we did these like events that were building as well as having a press day with demos with some really professional home cooks who had brand new cookbooks coming out. But what really, when it came to like actually our specific launch day, I'm proud to say this is a former journalist, but what moved the needle more than anything was organic press. And we had a ton of it. Our launch day, we were on Vogue, Fast Company, Food and Wine, Architectural Digest, and Domino, just on day one. Within two weeks, there was a Sunday where we were in both the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. We were in GQ's Best Stuff of 2018 because one of our first, first samples we had sent to an editor at GQ to review. So every day, there was like multiple stories. And none of these were paid. None of these were affiliate deals. These were just editor relationships, some of which were some that I had known before. But most of it was, I think, we actually just knew how to pitch the story. And being on the other side of it as a journalist allowed us to communicate very effectively with these editors. So I think that's really where we should double click. You've had a tremendous amount of experience as a journalist, and you have relationships with the people that would be writing these articles. So you've a little bit of an unfair advantage. And I don't know whether you have a relationship with Vogue or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever publications there may be. But for the people that haven't had a career as a journalist, give us the playbook for how you should try to secure these types of earned media opportunities. I would say, one, I don't think it's an unfair advantage because I spent over six years of my career building that. It was just actually an asset when we launched and and earned one. By unfair advantage, I don't mean that you did anything that's unfair, but I (laughs) I don't have the ability to go towards the editor of the New York Times and say, hey, I'm starting a new brand. Will you launch it? Well, what was interesting was there were a couple people that I had pre-existing relations with, but most of them were actually brand new contacts. So... I think actually what allowed us to succeed there was just tailored pitches, knowing that I can't tell you how often as a journalist, I get these canned, one-size-fits-all pitches for a company. And they're the quickest thing that I delete. I knew that the Domino story was different than the Food and Wine story, was different from the Wall Street Journal story, was different from the Forbes story, and put a lot of time and energy into really tailoring those. And making it so that I knew I was contacting the right editor. I looked up their prior work, researched what they had covered and how they had covered it. And really thinking about part of what our company is trying to do is really marry that substance with style. So that we could not just be speaking to an exclusively food audience, but people who, quite frankly, probably have really nice cookware. We designed these very intentionally with a huge style component. And that goes to our brand as well. You know, our first campaign shoot was super styled. And some people said, is this a fashion shoot? Is it a food shoot? Being able to cross categories there. So from a consumer perspective, reading about us in Vogue made just as much sense as reading about us in Bon Appetit was all part of the work we had been doing for many months. 
So talk to me about how the pitches vary across multiple different publications. I understand the design element and having a very fashionable product opens up the ability for you to be in non-food specific publications, but you're in the Wall Street Journal as well. Give me an example of why a financial publication cares about a cooking product. How does that pitch look? Well, to be clear, we were a Wall Street Journal magazine, so it was more lifestyle. But we were in Forbes twice. We were in Forbes around our fundraise, and we were in Forbes when we, Maddie and I were named the 30 under 30 list. I think right now, for good reason, these financial publications are spending a lot of time and energy on female entrepreneurs, partly because we're seeing many that are successful and that are also much more in the public eye in, in some ways in Instagram and social media than their male counterparts. I also think they're probably correcting for years of not really focusing on the female entrepreneurs. Rightfully so. Yes, there's a moment for that right now. I hope it's not a trend, but there was 100% a moment. And as two young women who had also known each other for 20 years, and which is a genuine story that people really responded to, I think we saw from the business side, a lot of attention. So as you get up to launch day, you're focused on earned media opportunities. You're contacting various journalists. You're having people write about your products. You've been building an Instagram following. So you already have access to a, a pre-launch list to market to. Are there any other channels that you included in your actual launch efforts? Were you doing any paid marketing? Were you doing any affiliate deals, any content marketing? We did no affiliate deals. And we didn't launch on day one with any paid marketing, but we just started working with an Instagram and Facebook consultant and we're like putting our toe in there. So we were testing that out soon after launch, but there was no affiliate. There's no other paid channels. We did do two other things. One of which was we did wild postings, which are like those posters on the street in New York, which looked great, impossible to track. I mean, it was probably more for like our egos than anything. Like it was not something that I would account for more than success, but it was cool to walk down the street and see. The other thing that we did, which I think is a step beyond influencer marketing, was that we have editorial on our site. Again, this is something I had done at New York Magazine, but we launched with storytelling embedded in our platform. So we have three profiles on the site of three different people, only one in the food space. One was a fashion designer, one was an ESPN journalist, and one was a woman entrepreneur who makes hot sauce. And we photographed them and we told their story. So I think we already were also building in that editorial. And those people, beyond just someone saying, I bought a pod in the mail, here it is. These were people who posted more than once, who had their photos in it, were like super invested in our success. And we've built on that since day one. But I see it as a much more robust influencer strategy to actually get to like have those people feel invested in us and vice versa rather than just be a fleeting moment. So I think the takeaway here is for you, running a product launch was very much about cultivating and utilizing the existing relationships that you had, whether it be with journalists, whether it be with food industry influencers, fashion influencers, some of the other people that you reached out to. It isn't just, here's a product sample, could you write about us, right? You're having a regular dialogue and trying to cultivate actual partnerships and relationships with these people. Last question I have for you for running your product launch. If you are taking a relationship-based approach to building buzz for your product launch, how do you maintain and stay on top of all of the relationships that you're building? 
that's a good question and something that I'm still sensitive to. Some of these people were people I had known for decades. Some of them were people I had written about and thought, well, I'm never, ever going to be a journalist again because now I'm asking a chef to invest or asking them to be a tester. Reaching out to press is like a whole other workflow and stream, and that's just keeping an organized spreadsheet and following up. Reaching out to more people on the influencer editorial side, it was a smaller number. And I think what really helped is we were just very specific with what we were asking people. That helped us as much as it helped probably the person we were asking, making it very clear what, what we wanted. I didn't email editors and we'd say, oh, let's just get on the phone and chat. It was like, this is a story. This is the angle I've been thinking. Obviously, like not everyone follows what you lead with, but really being clear in our intentions of what we were leading with. Well, I think that's great advice, and I think it's a great place for us to stop today. So that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Sierra Tishkart, the founder of Great Jones, for joining us. In part two of our interview, which we're going to publish tomorrow, Sierra is going to talk to us about how to keep your post-launch momentum. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Sierra, you can click on the link on, click on the link to her LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send her a tweet at Great Jones, or you can visit her company's website, which is GreatJonesGoods.com. Just one link that I'd like to tell you about in our show notes. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com. We have summaries of all of our episodes. We have contact information for our guests. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, and you can always send us your questions or topic suggestions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we publish episodes every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.